And so I want to read Colossians chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. And I want you to understand, if, you, if you're in here and you're like, he, with the things that this, this guy is telling me to do, um, this is why I don't go to church. Because there's just a bunch of things that we're supposed to do. Please go back and listen to the last several weeks. Because it took five or six weeks to get to this place. Because everything we talked about before is what has been done for us and who we are now. And so I, I can't rehash a lot of that stuff, so you have to go back and listen to that first. And that's where I'm building on. So there is a lot of um, imperatives here, things that we are to do. And they're all based on what's been done. Okay? So that's my little bit of, you know, uh, disclaimer, caveat, whatever. Let me read verses 11 through 14 and then ask God for help. Verse 11. Here, here in the community of faith, in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's our text. Let's, let's pray. God, I, we ask for your help. Um, I know that this is, these things that we look, we look to are, are, are so difficult to attain. I, I know that uh, I, like probably a lot of people here, like going to church and hearing a sermon and music and just consuming it and leaving. And that's it. And we repent of that this morning. We don't want to be consumers of religious goods and services today. We want to live into the kingdom that you've saved us to be into. And we ask for your help. I pray that, that you would throw down, Jesus, every thought, every thing that exalts itself above Jesus and Christ, that you would be exalted above everything else. You're way smarter than us. You created us. You created all things. And you hold all things together. And so we look to you and we turn to you and we ask that you would teach us this morning. And I pray that, God, that you would anoint me. I need every word from my mouth to come from you. Um, I need your help. So I submit my, my mind to you, my heart, my mouth, and I pray that you would be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as we've been talking about identity, the thing that we ask every single week and we've been asking every single week is, identity is who you are. And as we even begin to ask that, a lot of people don't really think of this a lot of times. Like, you don't go through life waking up on a Monday morning like, who am I? Who am I really? And we don't think like that. So when I bring up this question, there's, there, this has kind of like kicked up the dust a lot. And I, I've been, we've been hearing a lot of response from this. Like, I've never really thought about who I am. I just kind of accepted the fact uh, that, that I am my job or am I whatever. And I never really thought that I'm, I'm not that. And so what we've been saying and what we've been saying in this series is that there's basically two different ways, two different ways to view our identity. There's a traditional way to view our identity and a more modern way to view our identity. The traditional way, um, one went about finding who they were, finding an identity, is what is identical about them in every situation. Identity, identical, that's not you know, rocket science, that's pretty easy. So it's like, what is identical in every situation that I'm in? 
Whatever is identical, that is my identity. So, for instance, here it's very easy to say, I am what I do. Because that's like the same. I'm always a plumber. I am always a you know, fireman. I'm always a whatever. I'm always this. Your career, your vocation. And that's who you are. And that's kind of what defines you. Or you're always a mom or dad or husband or wife. Or the good middle child. That was you. The spoiled, good, innocent middle child. Or maybe the rebellious younger sibling. Whatever it is. That's who you were, and that was your identity. About, it was formed about what you did. It's also easy to form in this traditional way of looking at it. What's identical about you is forming an identity around what you have. So this could be good looks. Some of you are very good-looking, and that's your identity. You're always the one that people try to pick up on. You're all, and that's you every single time you walk into any store, any, any bus, anything. Like Everyone's looking at you, and that's kind of how you formed an identity. And that also can have negative effects, that you're not that person. And so that's affected you. Or this could be your money or your charm. Things that you have. And these things that are most identical about us are how we form an identity. Now, there is a more modern approach. I think there's a more modern approach even in our city of San Francisco. A more modern approach to identity, while the traditional one still remains very strong... Uh, the, uh, the modern one is illustrated very well by an article from a couple weeks ago in the New York Times called In Search of the True Self by Josh Noob. I think that's how you pronounce it, unless it's noob, which would be horrible, but I think it's Noob. <laughs> and this article, which a lot of you guys emailed me and tweeted me and stuff like that, um, and actually in, in the article and in the comments that followed the article, this is how the true self was defined. Quote, The true self lies precisely in our suppressed urges and unacknowledged emotions. To find a moment when a person's true self comes out, one needs to look at the times when people are so drunk or overcome by passion that they are unable to suppress what is deep within them. This is where a lot of modern people say, I am what I desire. I am what I desire deep deep down. That's who I really am. The real you is a you that when you're so overcome and drunk with passion, it just comes out and like, that's who I am. That's who you really were the whole time. And modern world will say, just be who you are. Whatever you're suppressing, whether it's because of fundamental culture or your parents or fear, whatever it is, let that come out and that's who you really are. You are the desires that you often suppress. And this is how we sometimes form a sexual identity, a popular cultural identity. Now, what does Scripture say? So what we've been doing now is taking what people say who we are, and we've been taking it back to the Word of God and going, what what does God say? What does God say about our identity, who we really are? Now, the biblical or Christian understanding of forming an identity or finding an identity is completely, completely altogether different. And that's what we've been talking about. Our identity in Christ, this is how it starts. It starts first, and this is huge. It starts by believing something about Jesus, then believing something about ourselves in light of what we believe about Jesus. So it doesn't start with you. Your identity and finding your identity doesn't start with you. It starts with Jesus, okay? So you believe something about Christ, and then you take that something about Christ and apply that to yourself. So it looks something like this. 
The biblical view of identity is the Christian life involves not just believing something about Christ, but also believing something about ourselves. Believing something about Christ and believing something about ourselves. It doesn't start with you necessarily. It starts with Jesus. You believe something first about Christ. Now, what do we believe? What is this something? We believe something about Jesus and something about us. What is this something that we believe about Jesus? Well, Colossians chapter 2. This is the way that Paul opens kind of his letter speaking about Christ. Colossians 2 verse 15. It reads like this. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's what Paul starts. He goes, you have to understand Jesus before you understand who you are. You have to understand who he is and then who you are in light of who he who he is. So first we have to believe something about Christ. First it says Christ created all things, which means this, you were created in the image of God. He created all things and you were created in the image of God. He is above all things, which means this, that you're not the most important thing in the world. Now that's hard to grasp. You, maybe you should say that to yourself in the morning in the mirror. I am not the most important thing in the world. He is above all things, even you. He holds all things together. This is another good thing to tell yourself. I'm not in control. He holds all things together. Everything Christ holds together. He's reconciling all things, meaning Jesus is setting everything right. Jesus, listen, Jesus is setting everything right. Every injustice, every crime, every break in the peace of humanity, every break in the peace of the environment, Jesus is setting it right again. He's setting the w- things right according to the way they were supposed to be. This means relationships. This means the environment. This means the government. This means the economy. The Bible teaches that sin is, this was made popular by Cornelius Plantinga, sin is, the best definition of sin is the vandalism of shalom. The peace of God was vandalized. It breaks peace. This is why God hates sin. You're like, how can God hate sin? This is why God hates sin. Because it breaks the established peace of God. God set things perfect, in perfection, everything in perfect balance with each other. Environment, perfect in balance with humanity. Humanity, perfect in balance with animals. Animals in perfect balance with the government. Everything perfect. And sin is a break of that. It's a vandalism a destruction of the peace of God. Sin vandalizes the way that, we're, that we were supposed to be. Living lives of flourishing and wholeness and delight. Sin comes in and breaks that. Now, every single one of us has a notion of the way things ought to be. 
We all kind of sense that this is not the way it's supposed to be. When, when you, I don't know if you've ever had something taken from you. Or I remember when the first time my car was broken into in San Francisco. I go out and I have this weird fear now every time I go to my car that someone's going to break the window or the window's broken. So I always look at the ground before I look at my car. It's, I'm, now, it's just damaged me. I don't know. This is therapy. Sorry. I'm just like letting it all out. Okay, okay. So when I first walked up and my car window was broken, they didn't steal anything. They just, I don't know, they just wanted to vandalize my car. Broke my window. Take it to the thing. They're like, uh, take it to get replaced. They go, oh, yeah, an average, you'll probably get your car broken into once a year here. It's like your rite of passage for, being, for living here and having a car. It's like you get tickets and your window gets broken. That's what it takes, okay? And I remember there's just something wrong with that. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way that God created it. Someone walk up and bust your window open. This, and we all have this sense, every single one of us, when something goes wrong, this is not the way it was supposed to be. Think about it this way. We know how many things human life, we know how many ways human life can go wrong because we know how many ways human life can go right. We, all of us, all of us have this sense. We all possess this notion of the world in which things are the way they ought to be. And what Jesus does is he remakes this world. He brings in shalom, peace of God, once again. How does he do that? Paul writes, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ took the penalty of a, of a whole world gone wrong. And now he's in this process of renewal. Now, now that I'm, this is now, this is where our identity starts. First, understanding who Christ is. And now this is where it starts to torn, turn towards us. Now, what do I believe about me? Okay, I, this is what I believe about Christ, but identity isn't just believing something about Christ. It's also believing something about yourself. Cool. So you're like, okay, I believe this about Christ. That's, my identity starts there, but it doesn't end there. Now I have to take this, and I have to believe something about myself as well. So what about me? What about you? What do we believe about ourselves? Now, some people will tell you that depression comes from a low opinion of yourself. Now, I'm not talking about manic depression so much. I'm talking about being sad. Have you ever read WebMD on symptoms? And you're like, I have that. And I have that. Like, just reading depression, I'm like, when am I not depressed? Like, this is me every single day. Like, okay, what is it? How, how do we get depressed? And some people say, it's, well, it's a low, and that was like number two, a low self-esteem causes depression. Here's the deal. Sometimes low self-esteem is just really good self-awareness. Think about that. Sometimes your low self-esteem is true. It's right about you. You're like, I'm this. And you're like, I mean, if someone's real honest, you're like, well, yeah, you are. <laughs> I mean, I remember when I was going bald. And I was like, I'm going bald. Everyone said, you're not going bald. I'm like, why do you tell me that? <laughs> like, you're not. I'm like, my hair's falling out and I can see my scalp. Like, you're not, you're not. I'm like, what? Why, why don't you just tell me that you see it too? That would help me a lot better. Then you're saying, no, 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 you're not going bald. Like, a lot of times when we, when we confess something, I'm this, and, and we have friends like, you're not that. The fact is, you are that. Okay, but low self-esteem, actually, biblically, it doesn't start there. Low self-esteem, depression, depression doesn't come from a low opinion of ourselves. It comes from a low opinion of Jesus and the redemption that Christ brings, and the love that he brings, and what he's done on your behalf. That's where real depression comes from. So something might be true of you, but because of Christ, it's not the truest thing about you. It doesn't define you. In Christ, you are loved, accepted, 
and he's bringing about the renewal of all things. So, this is what we should believe about ourselves. That this Jesus, who is above all things and before all things, who holds all things together, he loves you. You're like, oh, I know he loves me. No, no. He loves you. He's pursued you. He's went after you. He's humbled himself to die for you while you were still in rebellion and wanted nothing to do with him. And once you surrender and you place your trust in Christ, you're made perfect. You're made perfect. And you could not be any more, God could not be any more in love with you. And you will be presented perfect on that day. And he takes away your guilt and shame and the vandalism of sin that your sin brought. He restores that. And he takes off all of that sin and he clothes you with his righteousness, his favor, and his perfect life. And his love and his righteousness is given to us and that is the truest thing about us. So then Paul goes on to verse 12. Look at verse 12 in Colossians 3. So, because of all that, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. There it is again. You're holy and beloved of God. Now, we're not loved because we're valuable. You're not even loved because you're lovable. You're valuable because you're loved. Do you understand the difference there? You are valuable because you're loved. God loves us, and his love for us makes us valuable. It's kind of like the law of supply and demand. What makes something valuable and pricey? It all depends on who wants it. Who wants you? Who paid the ultimate price for you? God. And that's why you're so valuable. And it goes on, you're not chosen by God because you're holy. You're holy because you're chosen by God. You're chosen. God takes us and he makes us holy. He sets us apart. So Paul writes, hey, holy and beloved. Now this is the strange part. He says, holy and beloved people, be compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient. And you're like, wait, um, I'm holy. Of course I'm kind and humble. Like, it's weird. He's like, hey, holy people, be holy. You're like, why would you tell holy people to be holy? Like, hey, holy person, you should be kind. They're like, uh, kind, I'm holy, hello. But Paul does that anyways. Wouldn't those things define a holy person? Well, this is the whole indicative imperative paradigm that we've been talking about, talked about a couple weeks ago. Let me refresh your memory, lest you, in case you forgot. Indicative means something that has already been indicated or declared about you. It's a fact. It's a truth about you. You are holy and beloved. And then there's the imperative. There's a command that, that, that is only sustained by the weight of the indicative. There's a command that's brought in. That's the only reason why that command is there is because there's a fact there, a truth there. An imperative is a command or a direction. Now, naturally, every single one of us only hears imperatives. We only hear commands. When we read the Bible... We only hear commands when we read the Bible. This is a lot of the reason why many people leave church. I do this all the time. I blow over the truth and move straight to what I have to do. I'm pragmatic when I read the Bible. I'm like, just tell me what I have to do today, God. I'll read James just really quick, and then I'll just go about my day. Just tell me what I have to do. Let me read you Colossians again. This is kind of how we read Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. Put... On then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, human, that's how we read it. 
we blow over the holy beloved part every single time. We're like, hey, you, holy and beloved person, you better be nice. That's kind of what we hear. We're like, okay, I better be nice. And you better be compassionate, okay? But we don't hear, hey, holy and beloved one. We never hear that part. We never hear the indicative. And we do this all the time. Sometimes I feel like the Bible is trying to flatter me to get me to do good things. It's like, hey, you're awesome. Good outfit today. Oh, really? Thanks. Yeah, could you take out the trash? Maybe? Like, you, hey, you know what? Great hair day. I, really? Good? Yeah, great hair day. Um, could you do something for me? It's like it's trying to flatter us before it tells us what to do. But that's not what's happening. God doesn't flatter us by going, hey, you, you're awesome. You're amazing. I love you. Really, you love me? Yeah, okay, I need you to do something for me. That's not what's happening here. What's happening is this. God is telling us, Paul is writing to us by the leading of the Holy Spirit, telling us to function out of who we really are. Your real identity as a disciple of Jesus. For the follower of Jesus, the Bible says this is now your worldview. This is the way your life should be wrapped around this sort of worldview, that Christ is above all. We went over this. Christ is above all. He's preeminent. He's your life. He created all things. He's reconciling the world to himself. He's bringing in peace. Christ has won. That's our worldview. Therefore, put on, verse 12, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. So this is what we're to do. Now we're all getting, we're getting to what we have to do. Now let me stop and let me say this before I move on. Before I, I might say some things about this church that we have to do. Anyone who is part of a church community should know that it is a place, that this is a place of transformation, of discipline, of learning, and not merely a place to be comforted and indulged. Please hear that before what I say next. That this community of faith, this covenant community bought for by Christ's own blood, precious to him, calls it his bride, is not just to indulge you or to comfort you. It is a place where you should be transformed. It is a place for spiritual formation. This church, the pastors and leaders in this church and the people, just the, the people that go to this church should form us. We should all be formed spiritually by the Holy Spirit. We all should be disciplined. We all should be learning together. So I say that before I move on because I want you to know, like, if, if some point in the sermon you're like, well, I didn't feel real comforted there, like, you're not really, that's not the whole goal of this. It's that you feel good, okay? The whole goal of this is that you become, we become, as a church in San Francisco, more like Jesus, okay? That's what we're here for. So it says that we are to put on a heart of compassion, a heart of compassion, this is what you and I are called to do. We are to, you, you, you understand that you live for a king and in a kingdom, if you're a follower of Jesus, that had compassion for the most marginalized people in society. Jesus, for Jesus, it, what it looked like to, to love the most and, and have compassion for the, the worst, most marginalized people in his day, people like that, that have, people with leprosy, lepers who never felt human touch once they were deemed unclean. Never. Wasn't even allowed to be around people close enough to where they can touch them. It's 
It says time and time again that Jesus went up to these sort of people in the Gospels. He had compassion on them, and he touched them. He touched them. He embraced them. Now, I want you to think about the lepers in our society today. The church, the people of God, the people that come to this church should be hands-on with such people. Hands-on. Reaching out. This shouldn't be a big deal for us either. It shouldn't be like, okay, I got to get psyched up to go love people. It should be the kingdom that we're a part of. See, everyone else outside the kingdom, yeah, they have to get worked up. For us, it's our, our supernatural inclination to want to help marginalized people. It should be. And the reason why it should be is because that's the kingdom that we live in. It should be like second nature, part of our new kingdom ethic. And this is the biggest reason why. The reason why we are to love people like this who are marginal, because you were a leper, because you were isolated, the disease of sin was eating away at you, and Christ touched you, and he had complete compassion on you, and you didn't deserve it, and you didn't earn it, and it was an act of compassion. You're a sinner saved by grace. Do you understand that? You're a sinner saved by grace. So when you see a person who's a mess, who's physically a mess, or financially a mess, socially a mess, mentally a mess, and they're completely without resources. You don't look at them and say, you know what, that's too bad for them. You look at them and say, that's what I look like to God. And God came down and got dirty to redeem me. Too many times we do this, and that's kind of why we started in verse 11, we see the world as us and them. Jew, Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian. We kind of divide our world up. Have, have not. Touchable, untouchable. Like, dislike. We kind of want to divide our world that way. And, and what, is, what did Paul say? That's all irrelevant in Christ. Christ is all and in all. That is our new life now. We, we must put on compassion heart. This means, this word literally means um, uh, have, have com- compassionate bowels. I don't know, that's kind of a weird, that's what it literally translates into. Like deep within, who, what, the way that we function, the way that we live deep inside, we're compassionate toward one another. Do you know that you're a sinner saved by grace? That you're freely loved by Jesus? And that you are whole in Christ by nothing you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you, that's where compassion should come from. Next is kindness. I'm just going to say this because I think it's true. Actually, I know it to be true. It might sound kind of harsh, but I'm just going to say it. Some of you in here are Christian jerks. Christian meaning, I I use that word very lightly, word Christian, meaning you follow Jesus or you say you follow Jesus, but you're a flat-out jerk and you need to repent. The way you treat women, the way you treat men, the way you treat coworkers and other Christians who are different than you are, you're a jerk to them. Kindness, this word kindness here means good and gracious. This isn't something that you should try to like, like tell yourself that you have to do this. Should, you should operate out of this place because Christ has been good and gracious to you. So the second that you're a jerk to someone, you should be in your own heart going like, why would, Christ was never like that to me. Ever. I've been saved freely by his goodness 
and his kindness, I must, I must repent. You ever notice how when you walk into church or a small group, you want people to be good and gracious to you? I mean, you walk into this church, you're like, I just want people, I mean, we, we write reviews on websites about how kind or whatever a church was or this was or that was. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are the church. So don't come in here looking to be to someone to be good and gracious to you. You go and be good and gracious to someone else. I mean, you are the church. You should walk in here. You should walk into your work and into your home with your roommates, the people that are closest to you, good, gracious, and kind to them because you're the church. Next, humility. Humility means to literally humble yourself. It's not an aura or a mood. It's not like, hey, man, I'm humble. I'm just, I'm just living in this humble state. It's not a humble state. It's not a mood. It's an action. It means humble yourself. Christ's humility was supreme action of humbling. He humbled himself. He wasn't like Christ was humble in the sense that he just kind of walked around with this like aura of humility. He, he humbled himself and he continued to humble himself. It's an action. Philippians 2 says, let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, listen to this, which is yours in Christ. It's your identity. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God something to be grasped, but made action, himself nothing. Taking action, the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled, he action, humbled himself Becoming obedient to the point of death, action, even death on a cross, action. It was action. Guys, if you're trying to think that, like, I want to be humble, I just let me pray that God, God, give me humility. Okay, God doesn't go, bam, humility. There you go, today, you got it. You're going to walk through and it's going to be like, humble, and I'm like, always humble, and I'm like, giving up my seat on, on Muni, and it's like this, no, it's action. It's like, I got to be humble in this moment. I want to be a jerk, but I'll be humble. I was right and when my boss said this, I wanted to come back and go, no, you were wrong. And I want to explode on them, but I'm going to be humble. I'm going to choose to be humble. It's an action. You have to do it. Humility requires action and service toward one another. Let me ask you, as one of the pastors here, how are you doing in the area of service? Are you serving someone, anyone in this room? Are you serving anyone in this city? Like sacrificially pouring out your life, self-denial, not, not self-interest, not self-preservation, but serving because Christ has served you and because you are his disciple and a part of his kingdom that's breaking into San Francisco. Are you serving one another? Gentleness and patience. I promise this will be the last one. Gentleness and patience. Did you know that there are self-righteous people in our church? Oh yes, there are. There are self-righteous people in this church. You know what you have to do? Be patient with them. Self-righteous people in this church are learning the grace of God. They are learning that they don't live in middle, middle America anymore where everyone thinks like they do. They are learning that they are no better than anyone else in this room and that Christ died for them because they're sinners as well. They are learning to extend to others the same grace that has been extended to them through Christ Jesus. It is a process to be transformed from self-righteousness. There are self-righteous people in this church. We must be patient with them. 
Patience means this, that we bear with them, that we forgive them. Forgiveness is a topic that we'll talk about next week. Patience means that you bear with them. You allow them to push you to faith in good deeds because uh, self-righteous people are really good at pushing you to faith in good deeds, but you also push back. You show them that self-righteousness is a sin that Jesus probably hated the most, but that doesn't make them wrong and you right. It makes Jesus right and you both wrong. So some self-righteous person confronts you. You don't go, you're self-righteous, therefore I'm not going to do what you said. No, you're self-righteous. They might be self-righteous, but you're a drunk, and you both need to repent. So when they confront you, and they're self-righteous about it, this is what you do. You're like, you're self-righteous about that, but you want, you're right about me, but you're also self-righteous. So let's pray together and repent together, cool? That's what it's supposed to look like. Not like, you know what? You're a jerk. The way you said that to me, you self-righteous scum, I'm not even hearing what you're saying, you need to leave my life right now. I'm not going to be a part of your community group anymore, your church. I'm leaving. I can't believe self Yeah, there are self-righteous people here. And when they push you, you must push back and go, self-righteousness is not of God. Maybe you should have taken a little bit more humble approach. However, no, I will say, though, that I am a drunk. So let's pray. <laughs> if you could, this is the way the church should live together. It's so easy to go, yeah, but the way they said it to me, I hated it. So I, it might have been true, but it came off totally wrong. So I'm not going to listen to them ever again. Did you know there are very young, immature followers of Jesus in our community with a very large intellect? Young followers of Jesus, big mind, scary combination. <laughs> very scary. Be patient with them. They are learning to live into Jesus' ethic into Jesus' kingdom, into his reign on this earth. They're learning to wade through what is Christian, quite, you know, subpar Christian culture, and what does it look like to follow Jesus' call of discipleship. They're wading through that. Like, what is culture here? What is just Christian culture that you guys just do? And what am I called to do as a disciple of Jesus? They're learning that some of their many, 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 many questions may never be answered, and they have to embrace the mystery of the gospel, just like all the rest of us. Did you know there are people in this church that have been really, really, really damaged by another church and its leadership? So we have to be patient with them. They might want to not want to trust people right away. They might want to not want to trust small group leaders or pastors or leaders in the church because they've been so damaged. They might need sufficient time to heal. We should be patient with them. And did you know that there are people wrestling with their sexual identity in our community? We must be patient. They are seeing if the community of faith is really a place where they can wrestle with questions like that. And it is a place like that. This community is a place where you can wrestle with things like this. And they are wanting to know if this is a real family where they can let their guard down and be accepted. In Christ, it says that we are all, all, everyone, no one righteous, no, not one, and then we all come under the ethic of the new kingdom of God, every single one of us. Patience means that the way that we react to one another as members of Christ's covenant community is the way that Christ reacts to us. Christ did not react in condemnation, though he could have. 
But the cross of Christ shows and the cross of Christ proves that Jesus reacted in sacrificial service and patient love and compassionate grace. I want to show you one thing before we pray. In John 13, to be honest, I never read it like this before ever until we were, as a staff and interns, were reading through this and just, it jumped off the page. John 13, this is right before the feast of Passover, the last Passover Jesus would have with his disciples. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, look at verse 3. This is just changes everything. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going back to God, rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Did you pick up on something? I, didn't, I never picked up on it before, to be honest. The fact that the motivation, it says it right there in John, the motivation to serve, to even get lower than Christ had ever gone before up to that point, to go lower, to humble himself more, it was all functioning from this place. He knew that the Father had given everything into his hands. He knew that he was from the Father and he was going to the Father. He was completely secure in his identity in the Father. Completely. Therefore, it says, he took off his outer garment. He wrapped a towel around his waist. He went down and he started touching the filthiest parts of his disciples. To where Peter was like, dude, you cannot wash, not, not dude, anyway. Um, Jesus, you cannot wash my feet, okay? This is absurd. Are you insane? Put your clothes back on. You can't be down there washing my feet. How can Jesus humble himself like that? He knew who he was, he knew where he was from, and he knew where he was going. The only way that we are going to be able to humbly serve the city and serve our neighbors and serve our work and serve the church is understanding that. So it might read something like this. This verse might read something like this now. So-and-so, you, you can add your name there. So-and-so. Knowing that Jesus had given him every spiritual blessing, and that he has begun, he has been born again by the Spirit of God, and that he's going to stand perfect before the Father, rose from moral superiority and pride, and laid aside sexual immorality and impurity and evil desire and covetousness and anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and lying, and taking in a compassionate heart and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forbearance, forgiveness and love, tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to serve his fellow man. It's the only way that it's, it's sustainable for you to serve this church. The only way it's sustainable is you realize what Christ has done for you. Where you're going, what he's done, who you are in him. And once that's secure, you can get lower than anyone to serve for Christ's sake. Let's pray.
Lord, I know that the only reason why we even have the capacity to serve is that you have served us. And I know that there might be people in here that want this sort of life. Like, I really want to live this sort of humble life where I'm humbling myself and I'm kind to people and I'm patient with people, but there's, how do I do it? I pray they would first turn to Christ. I pray that they would turn to you and see that in you is humility, in you is patience, in you is kindness, in you is goodness, all displayed for us on the cross. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A prayer that would resonate deep within us, and then it would cause real change. I pray for this church, I pray for this church specifically, Lord, your bride here locally at reality. I ask Jesus that we would be this sort of church. Holy Spirit, do this in us. Give us this sort of heart where we're not jerks, we're compassionate to people and loving to people, and we forgive one another. Lord, we're all messed up, and we all, we go around, and we just, sometimes we wreck each other's lives, and we repent. We pray that there would be grace found here and forgiveness found here, hope and love, Lord, found here. And then through here to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.